My name is Sue Collinson, for those who don't know me or haven't met me yet. <clears throat> I wonder, how have you been feeling these last few weeks? <clears throat> or how did you feel this morning listening to Lamentations 4? Just perhaps think for a moment, if you're at home, just pause for a moment and think, how does that reading make me feel this morning? I think I've felt a number of emotions. I think shock, surprise, confusion, sadness, bewilderment, lots of things, lots of feelings that Lamentations has brought up for us. But to be honest, there is one feeling that I wanted to share with you this morning, and that is a feeling of relief, a feeling of gratitude almost that this strange little book, these five poems, Lamentations, is in our Bible. It's in our holy, sacred book. And we call that book the Word of God. So these words that seem almost unspeakable are spoken, as it were, by God himself. They are contained within his word. It is as though God himself doesn't only see and know what's going on, but he brings out that that needs to be brought out. He exposes that that needs to be exposed, that that's shameful or difficult or unspeakable. And so we are grateful for Lamentations. And if you've been with us for these last few weeks, you will know the context of Lamentations is utter destruction. The city of Jerusalem has been invaded after a long siege, a two-year siege, and it now lies in ruins in complete devastation and uh, destruction. And there is really hardly anyone left. Those who have survived the siege, who haven't died of famine, have been taken off into exile, and those left have been left for dead. So these five poems is the poet expressing his grief uh, at what's happened. And as I looked over them, I thought to myself as a bit of a recap, each chapter has its own sort of feel, its own characteristic, if you like. So chapter one, I think, is characterized by grief. It's the poet just expressing an incredible sense of loss, of what he looks around and then all that's lost. Chapter two, I think, is about anger. I think the poet is, as it were, not just shaking his fist at God, but actually almost pointing at God. You know, he has done this. He has ransacked. He has plundered. He has done this. Chapter three, I think, is characterized by sobbing, if I'm honest. It's a lot of tears, a lot of crying, that sort of expression of grief. And chapter four is almost where the poet sort of gets to the sort of all cried out stage, the, the whimpering stage, if you like. It's a bit like when a child has had a massive tantrum and then starts <gasps> catching their breath. He's whimpering. It would have been nice, wouldn't it, to have uh, stayed at that moment in chapter three, that slither of hope, the shard of hope that... Claire talked about last week, where the poet remembers God's faithfulness, God's mercies that are new every morning. 
but lamentation forces us to go back into lament. It's almost like grief, isn't it? The, the, the waves of grief wash over us again, and then again, and then again. And so we are back in, I'm afraid, we are back in lament in chapter 4. And in this chapter, what we see is the poet almost standing back and reflecting a little on what he sees. It is brilliant poetry, and I'm afraid it's lost on me because I'm not a Hebrew speaker, but we have heard a bit about that over these last few weeks. But one literary device that the poet uses is something called parallelism. And this is where it's used a lot in Hebrew poetry, in the Psalms as well. And it's where one part of the verse echoes or contrasts the second part. So the first part uh, is linked to the second part. And here the poet uses it very powerfully because what he does is he contrasts what was with what is now. And it's so much more, it's so much better than a description, isn't it? It's not just saying this is the way it is. It's saying, look at how it was compared to how it is now. The contrast is staggering. So we read in verse 2, how the precious children of Zion are now considered as pots of clay. Or in verse 5, those who once ate delicacies are destitute in the streets. He's describing this horrifying reversal, really. Blessings have become curses. The magnificent, beautiful temple, the place where God's presence was, is now an ugly heap of ruins. People who were worth something, people who were made in the image of God, are now seen as worthless, broken pottery. The land itself, a land that was promised to them, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, fertile and productive, is now a land where babies die of hunger, where toddlers walk around with swollen bellies. The princes, the princes that were handsome and young and healthy, now on the ash heap, sick and unwanted. And the women, the compassionate mothers, having to turn to cannibalism. I think what makes Lamentations particularly hard for us is not just that it makes us face pain and suffering, but Lamentations also makes us face sin and evil, wrongdoing. It brings us face to face with the consequences of man's inhumanity to man. We see the devastation caused by an invading army, the fallout of a lawless society, the suffering of a community that has completely lost its way. And sometimes the poet accuses others of this sin, and sometimes it's as though he recognizes the culpability of himself and his people. It seems, doesn't it, as though in the face of such utter unrighteousness, all are implicated, all are affected. No one is left. So men, women, children, rich, 
poor, priest, prophet, everyone is included. It's as though judgment is the great leveler. But there is one group in particular that gets special attention, and that is the priests and the prophets. We read in verse 13, it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed within her the blood of the righteous. So it's those who have spiritual power and authority over others, those who care for or have a responsibility of care for others spiritually who are particularly targeted. These are those who should have brought healing and restoration. They're the ones who people should have been shepherded by, cared for, and pastored. But they are the ones who are now the guilty and the stained, the unclean, not able to bring healing to others because no one goes near them. It's a heartbreaking contrast, isn't it, to the blessings of God. We sing that beautiful blessing about the Lord wanting to bless us and keep us, to turn his face towards us and give us peace. But here, rather than seeing God blessing and gathering, what we see is God having to scatter them and turn his face from them. And I think it's this complete sense of abandonment by God that brings the poet to the lowest point in his lament where he feels hopeless. There is no one to save them. They look in vain to another, another nation, but there is no one to help. So, as we sit in this lament, what is it that God is giving us? Well, I believe he's giving us two things. The first thing I believe God is giving us as we learn to lament is he's giving us permission to speak out our pain and to speak out the suffering that we see around us. He is giving us, as it were, the words that we need to express sometimes what we feel. And we recognize that Jesus himself was a man of lament, one of the best descriptions of Jesus, best titles of Jesus, if you like, that I think we have, given, we have been given is the fact that he was a man of sorrows. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, familiar with suffering. And because Jesus himself is a man of lament, when we lament, we can connect our hearts, our lives, more closely with his. We remember that in the week before his death, Jesus looked out over this same city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it. He wept over it, and he said how much he wanted to gather that, that people, those people, uh, to himself, but they wouldn't have it. So when we lament, we remember that Jesus himself laments with us. He bears our sorrows. He joins us, as it were, in our weeping. And so I think lament does more than just legitimize our feelings of pain or suffering or sadness, but it actually turns them into an act of worship. 
we must remember that Lamentations, like the Psalms, was a book that was sung. It is, uh, as the Hebrew worship would have done it, they would sing the Psalms and they would sing these poems. And I think it's, that's a beautiful thing that we can actually recognize that lamenting is uh, singing a song of the faithful, not the unfaithful. So when we're in that place of lament, perhaps we need to recognize that we are closer to God than we think. I am hoping that this series will help us as a church to learn how to lament well. And we've really appreciated some of the sung worship that uh, we've been given these last few weeks. But let's help one another to learn how to do this, both here on a Sunday, but also in our own lives and homes. The second thing that I believe Lamentations gives us is this opportunity to face our failure. Failure, I really believe, is an integral part of our Christian lives. It's that moment when we recognize that we are not the people we thought we perhaps were. It's the moment in the pigsty for the prodigal son. It's the moment on Damascus Road for Paul when he realizes he's got it all wrong. It's the moment for dear Peter, that heartbreaking moment when he denies that he even knows Jesus, despite him being his closest friend for the last three years. But this failure is not something we just face as individuals. It's something that we need to face as a church. And I really believe we have to be real about this. In verse 12, uh, the poet says, the kings of the earth did not believe, nor did any of the world's people that enemies and foes could enter the gates of Jerusalem. They thought it will never happen here. It will never happen here. It could never happen here, but it did. There must be no hint of exceptionalism in us. We see that God's eye sees all. His righteous judgment searches out all sin, whether that's sin inside or outside of the church. Sins committed by his people as well as not. And I think this is sadly one of the main reasons why people don't actually want to be part of church that they see how the church has failed. They see the church's failure. They see the way that the church has colluded with people of power. They see the way that the church has abused the vulnerable. They see the way in which churches have harmed and hurt people. I was struck when Ruth Valerio came to speak to us uh, some a few years ago. And she stood here on this stage and she just said, Ruth Valerio is a, uh, an environmentalist, she's a theologian environmentalist. And she just stood here and she said, you know, I've been speaking about climate justice, about the crisis in our climate for about 25, 30 years and nobody really has been listening until now. And we as the church weren't listening until now. We failed to see 
what God sees. We fail to value what God values. We fail to love what he loves. And again, another sobering thought, this Lamentations text is a Jewish text, of course, and it's read every year by the Jewish people to commemorate and to, to remember the persecutions that they themselves have suffered. And we as the church are implicated in that. It makes me pause and think, how are we the cause of someone's lament? Are we the cause of someone's lament? So, this book of Lamentations is a picture, a poet's reflection on Israel's greatest failure. It is that moment in Israel's history where they haven't got a city, they, they haven't really, they don't feel like they're a people any longer. They are without their king, without their priest, without their temple, and seemingly without their God. But this moment, this moment of recognition of failure is the turning point. Because mercy is found when guilt is acknowledged. Even in this devastating picture, this devastating poetry of failure, we see mercy. Exile for the people of God at that time was the beginning of a new way, a new covenant. And there was a remnant. They were not utterly destroyed. There is a pinprick of light. We see it, don't we, at the very end of the chapter. O daughter of Zion, your punishment will end. He will not prolong your exile. This is pointing to a time when another great prophet will speak words of comfort over the people. The prophet Isaiah will say to them, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. The prophet knows that there is a way back. There is a return. Those verses at the end can be translated. O daughter Zion, your punishment will end. But it also can be translated, O daughter Zion, your punishment, it is finished. Because Lamentations points to an even greater turning point. Lamentations, of course, points to Jesus. Lamentations points to a moment in history when God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's mercy meet in the same person. And this is for not just a people, but for the whole of his creation. It's a time when God's judgment and his saving help come together. It is that moment on the cross. Because God does more than just lament with us. God does more than come alongside us and bear our sorrows. God does more than that. He acts to redeem. He acts in the person of Jesus. The cross is the place where pain becomes victory. And when Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. 
He is saying to us, it is over. The punishment is over. Your sin has been paid for. There is a way to a life of peace. We're going to pray together now. And we're going to pray using one of our lament songs. It was written by Kevin, one of our worship leaders, and it's a beautiful lament song. It uses the Greek words, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison, which simply mean, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy. <clears throat> and I love the fact that it uses the ancient words because it then connects our prayer for mercy. It connects us with centuries before us of Christians and God's people who have prayed to him for mercy over the years. You might want to remain seated as we pray. Let's pause for a moment. when we pray. Make us a people who lament. 
listen to our prayers for justice. Listen to our prayers for peace. Show your mercy, God. Show people that you have not forgotten them. Show them your love. Give them your hope. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us our greed. Forgive us for the way we have misused your creation. Forgive us for our apathy, for our indifference. Lord, help us. Lord, save us. Protect the vulnerable. Sustain the weary. Console those who are heartbroken over the loss of their land or their livelihoods. Make us compassionate people. Make us generous to our neighbors, those near and those far away. help those who are despairing, those who are depressed, anxious, those who are suffering in their minds, those who are suffering in their spirits.
send your Holy Spirit to those in need, to those who are sick or dying, to the lonely, to the housebound, to the bereaved. Please give them the comfort you promise. Send them help where help is needed. <laughs> 